Well, good morning and happy Father's Day. My name is Tim Van Dahlen. I'm the family ministry pastor here. And I have something I want to share with you real quickly. But before I do, um, we realized that as um, everybody was coming in and all the excitement of having root beer outside and all that stuff, we forgot to get all of our dads a ticket for our giveaway. So, or is it guys in general? Dads, how, how are we navigating this? Uh, don't know. This is not my job. But hey, if you're a guy in the room, put your hand up. <laughs> a dad's, if you didn't get a ticket, get your hand up. The ushers are going to come and get you a ticket. We have a couple of giveaways we want to give away. Um, so we want to make sure everybody gets their fair chance at that. So thanks. And while they're doing that, I just want to share something with you real quick. Um, and it's something that if you were here last week, John mentioned. And if you weren't, uh, we want to make sure that you know. And that's that, you know, as a church and as a leadership, we uh, decided that this fall, we need to move to having a third service. We've had two services for a long time, and um, God has brought so many people here that our services are becoming to or beginning to get full. And we want to make sure that we have room for more people and the people that you are investing in and impacting in have a seat where they can come and be challenged and can grow. And so John introduced us to a, a campaign that we're doing called And One, because for us to have another service means we need more volunteers, because it's the volunteers, not the staff, that make things happen on Sunday morning. And throughout right. this room, as you see them busy working, and uh, all throughout the building, there are dozens and dozens of volunteers that make our ministries here at CCC happen every week. And uh, to have another service, we need to have another whole crew that can help us with that. And so you'll see out in the lobby, um, on the wall, um, some And One cards that have some very specific roles in them. Everything from um, our first impressions to our worship ministry to our family ministry. And, and we want to highlight a few of those um, specific areas uh, each week here throughout the summer. And uh, well, this, the, the one that I was asked to highlight this morning is Studio 252, which is our elementary environment for kids in grades kindergarten through fourth grade. And last Sunday, I had the opportunity for the first time in a long time to, to teach up there. And let me tell you, it is a blast. They have a ton of fun up there. And uh, we're looking for people who uh, love elementary age kids and would love to do things like run tech up there or lead worship or be a large group communicator or the heart and soul of our ministry, lead um, small groups or be a small group helper. And so if you feel like that's an area where you might be able to plug in in one of those ways, uh, we'd love to talk to you out in the lobby after the service. You can grab one of these cards, fill it out and drop it in the bucket there. And uh, we'd love to talk to you more about what it looks like to serve uh, on Sundays in Studio 252. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, we have um, 75 opportunities out there for people to serve. 20% of those were taken last week, so that's a great start. And uh, thank you for those of you that stepped up, said, hey, I want to serve somewhere. And for those of you that attend here regularly, we'd love to have you consider getting on board, becoming part of one of the teams to serve here at CCC. Well, I'm John, and I'm the lead pastor here, and it's Father's Day, and so we want to celebrate Father's Day with all of you. I think the guys have a bucket they're going to bring up here, so got a couple of prizes that we want to give away to some of the dads, so, um, and uh, as you saw on your way in, you'll get something on your way out as well, so let me get the bucket here from Randy and draw a few names out here, so pull out your tickets, guys, get those tickets out. We got a couple numbers here, so let's see, we got number 2539, who's number 2539? 2539. Oh, come on up. Come on down, Don. We're going to see um, <clears throat> what Don thinks of his friends. So, um, all right. All right, Don, you have a choice. You can either take a $50 gift card to Home Depot or you can take um, 
four tickets to Pebble Beach of Reinhold's called Springside Chip and Putt down the road and take four of your buddies, three of your buddies to go play Chip and Putt and take them to Pizza at Giovanni's afterwards. So which one are you going to choose? Oh, he's going to go with the golf. So if you're Don's buddy, you're in good shape. So, all right. All right. Well, the other guy, who's number 2559? 2559. 2559. Come on down. All right. Gift card for 50 bucks. I don't know if you like Home Depot. Most guys will find some use of something at Home Depot. So uh, there you go. Congratulations. So thanks. Well, today is Father's Day, and we're going to dive into a, a challenging subject this morning, and that's how do you get what you want? How do you get what you want? And uh, I don't know about you as dads, but when it comes to getting what I want, I don't usually ask for a lot. I, I remember the, a while back, uh, there was something that came up in my house, and my wife said no to it, and I was not very happy about it. And I said, I don't ask for much. I just want this one thing, you know? And so I don't know how you are as dads, but you know, you know what it's like with your kids. When you're trying to get your kids to do something that you want, you know, it's going to require some form of bribery, you know, at some point. You know, you can kind of command, cajole, instruct them, um, and then, of course, you you can threaten them with life-altering circumstances, you know, but, uh, you know, it's always a hard challenge to try to get your kids to do something that you want them to do. Um, but how about your spouse? I wouldn't recommend this. It's probably not going to get you what you want with your spouse, um, but maybe you can uh, bribe them, sweet-talk them, plead, wink of the eye, a seductive look, whatever it takes to get their attention so that they will do what you want. Um, but then there's also the boss, you know, the boss is saying, convince me, convince me. You know, and what's it going to take? Extra hours, extra projects for me to move from never, maybe, to yes. What's it going to take to get what I want? But this morning, we're going to talk about that in relationship to our faith. And what do we do when we're trying to get what we want from God? What do we do when we're trying to get what we want from God? You say, John, I don't try to get something from God. You know, at least not in a manipulative, controlling way. But this morning, we're going to look at a story of a guy who did. A story of a guy who tried to get something from God, and when it didn't work out the way he thought it would, there was some pretty painful consequences. The truth is, if you ask yourself this question, when do you negotiate with God, what's the answer? When do you negotiate with God? Uh, when life is going well, when the bills are being paid, when everybody's healthy, when the job's secure, when there's money in the bank, is that when you negotiate with God? Probably not. Probably not. But how about when your relationship with your spouse has hit a brick wall and he or she just walked out? Do you negotiate with God then? What about when you're struggling with one of your kids and you can't sleep and you stayed up all night wondering what's going to happen? Is that when you negotiate with God? Um, what about when you go to the doctor and he said, well, it's one of these two things and neither one is good. Is that when you negotiate with God? How about when someone you love their life hangs in the balance. Is that when you negotiate with God? What if you're trying to conceive and God's not giving you a child? Is that when you start negotiating with God? And I want to suggest that probably all of us have found ourselves in a place where whether we are intentional or not, whether we articulate it or not, somewhere in the recesses of our mind and heart, we're negotiating with God. And if we're not negotiating with God, we're going the other route, which is bullying God and saying, God, I've done these things you told me to do. I've been faithful. I've followed you. I've walked with you. I've served. I've given. I've done all these things. And now it's time for you to come through for me. And so we're not negotiating, but we're bullying God. 
This morning, we're going to look at a story in the Bible that probably ranks up there as one of the more bizarre stories you will ever read. Now, you're going to hear that all summer long as we're in this series entitled, Never Forget the Sequel in the book of Judges. If you have your Bibles, if you would have turned to, if you turn to Judges 10, Judges 10 is where we're going to start. If you don't have a Bible, grab the one in the rack in front of you and turn to that one or open up an app on your phone and follow along there. Judges 10 is where we're going to be this morning. Judges 10, the Bible's in your seats, it's page 200. It's the early part of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And this, more, this summer, we're going to go back to the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is our events that happened in the land of Israel between the year of 1300 and 1000 BC. So about a 300-year window. And it's a very dark period of time in the history of the Jewish people. Very dark period of time. What had happened is they had come out of the Red Sea. They had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They'd crossed over the Jordan River. And now they were entering the Promised Land. And as they enter the promised land with Joshua leading the charge, Moses is off the scene, Joshua's leading the charge, they enter the promised land, they defeat some of the enemies, and at the end of Joshua 24, they say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And all the people said, so will we, and you put it on plaques in your houses now, you know, is what happened. Um, And they were all ready to serve and follow God. But things changed a little bit. Because after they got in the land and they started looking around, they thought, huh, what about that? What about that? I'd like to try a little bit of that. Could I have a taste of that? Could I have a little bit of that one? Could I have a little bit of that one over there? Um, Is what they were trying to decide. It's a little bit like, um, you know, you're trying to lose a little weight and so you're on this diet and then somebody says, hey, we're going to Shady Maple. And you're like, oh, Shady Maple on my diet. But, you know, I'll go and I'm just going to eat this and this. That's all I'm going to eat. I'm not going to eat anything else, you know, until you see one of these, you know, and they're like, ah, can I just have a little bite? Can I have a little taste? Yeah, a little taste. And a little taste leads to something else and it leads to something else and it leads to something else. And before you know it, you've eaten all your calories for the whole day, you know. Well, that's what happened to the people of Israel. You see, in that culture, in that day, um, Everything, everything, everything um, revolved around religion. Everything revolved around religion. It didn't revolve around politics. It didn't revolve around the military. It revolved around religion. And so out of religion flowed your ethics. Out of religion flowed your politics. Out of religion flowed your social setting and relationship. Out of religion flowed all of these things. And so the people of Israel were entering this new land, and there's all these new religions it's like a smorgasbord of religions. They're like, oh, I'd like to try a little bit of that. And could I have a taste of this? Could I have a few of these? Could I have a couple of those? And they did that by sampling all the religions of that day. Look what it says in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Asherah, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And anytime they wanted to sample something more, they tried another religion. They just added that. They tried another one, added that, tried another one, added that. Until they crashed and burned. You say, what do you mean they crashed and burned? The Israelites forsook the Lord with and no longer served me, became angry, he sold them in the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year, look at these words, shattered and crushed them. Shattered and crushed them. These people were just devastated. They were just devastated by these foreign enemies as they began to dabble in these foreign gods. And they pleaded with the God. They said, God, will you bail us out? God, would you help us out? 
They were in great distress, it says in verse, the end of verse 9. And they cried out to God. They said, we've sinned. We're going to give it all up. We'll come back to you. And God says, nah, not this time. Not this time. God says, you have forsaken me and served other gods. Go cry out to them. Let them save you. You've cried wolf to me one too many times. I am done. I am done. That's what God said to him in the middle of the book of Judges. I'm done with you. They then came back, and they then actually, if you go down and read the next couple of verses, they got rid of all their idols. They got rid of all the stuff that they were worshiping. They got rid of it all, and they said, now will you take us back? And God, in his unbelievable mercy, said, I'll give you another chance. And in that culture and in that day, the way that God did that, he would raise up a rescuer, a deliverer, someone that they called a judge. Not in the context that we think of a judge as someone who sits there and determines, did you do right or wrong and what's the consequence? But the judge is more like an action hero, like a deliverer, like a hero coming to save the day. These are not the kind of heroes that you want to have your kids model their lives after, even though some of you have named your kids after some of these guys, you know, but um, these are not the kind of heroes you really want to look up to. Because while they did rescue and deliver, there's another whole dark side to every single one of these individuals that you're like, oh, that's kind of, that's really bad. It's really bad. And so I want to introduce you to a hero that we're going to look at in Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11. This guy's name is Jephthah. And notice how the story starts out. Jephthah the Gileadite, which tells us where he was from, was what? He was a mighty warrior. He was a mighty warrior. I mean, this was everybody's kind of hero. I envision Jephthah kind of like Thor, you know? You know, the long golden locks, and he's ripped, he's buff, you know. Um, he's got this deep voice, this nice tan, he wears skimpy clothes, you know, and, uh, you know, a, a little bit like Roddy Hanna, you know, that's kind of what Roddy was like in high school. You know, did you know he was a lifeguard in high school? Could you imagine that big guy up on a lifeguard chair, you know, sunning himself? Out? No golden locks, you know, it's new dark hair, but everything else you can envision, right? You can kind of picture that. Um, but this was everybody's hero. He was everybody's hero. I mean, he was a mighty warrior. If you were in battle, you wanted this guy on your team. You wanted him at the front of the pack. You wanted to be behind him because you knew if you were behind him, nothing was coming your way. You know, I remember a few years ago when one of my running buddy, Jim, he's a much bigger guy, 6'2", 6'3", big guy, you know. Jim and I would go running quite a bit together. And we went down to, uh, to we we're going to run the Garden Spot Half Marathon. I said, Jim, let's run part of the race. So we went down. It was a windy day. And uh, Jim got down, and Jim would just get his head down like this, and I kind of got in really close behind him, as close as you want to get, and then the wind would go right around him, and I would just avoid the wind, and then, you know, he had his head down, and he couldn't see, and I'm looking up, and I'm seeing this manure spreader right there. It's full of manure right there, you know, just wafting over us, and I can't smell, so it didn't bother me, but he's going down, he's all of a sudden, he's like, what in the world, you know, and the smell just went right past me, but, you know, you wanted this, you wanted this guy in front of you, because he would block everything else around you. And so as amazing as the story starts out, it doesn't start out, he was born in this little rural home. No, it starts out, he was a mighty warrior. So you're like, what is up with this dude? How did he get to be like that? And then you read the second part of the verse, his father was Gilead, which that's obvious, and his mother was a prostitute. His mother was a prostitute. Not really the way you want to be remembered for centuries, Dad didn't have any restraint, and guess what? 
you're looking at him. I was born. I was born. Probably didn't win the favorite son of the year award as well, as you're going to see in just a moment. So while the story starts out in an amazing way about him being this mighty warrior, you get the rest of the story and you're like, oh, well, how did he get from that to that? Well, dad was married because it says his wife had more sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. That was probably profanity in that day. Um, these sons, when they got older, they realized, hey, he only gets half because he's only part of dad. He's only got part of dad in him. He doesn't have any of mom. He's not going to get any of this. We're getting the full share. And if we could push him out, guess what? His half share gets divided up into us and we get more. We get more. And they said, you're not one of us. You're not one of us. And they just pushed him out. They chased him out. And where did they chase him to? They chased him to the land of Tob. Tob is the land of misfit toys and people, is what Tob is. These are the people who didn't fit in. It was the outlaw planet. It was the part of town most people would not go. And that's where Tob was. And that's where Jephthah ended up. So the guy that didn't fit in, the guy that didn't have a place, the guy that didn't know his identity or was very insecure about his identity, he ends up here. But notice what happens to him, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. So even though he ends up here, this is a guy that has some leadership ability. This is a guy that has the capacity to lead. And even though he's, a, whether it's the local mob, the militia, or hired hitman, whatever title you want to give him, this guy could get people to follow him. And he could make something happen. And while he was there doing his bidding to the highest, doing his work to the highest bidder, someone surprisingly comes calling. Look in verse 4. When the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. This is like the kid who beats you up and steals your lunch asking you to help you with your homework. You know? It's like the sibling who always tortures you and then says, hey, I got to get these jobs done so I can go out with my friends. Can you give me a hand and I'll give you something for it? I mean, they threw him out. He got, I mean, remember, he got thrown out of his town, his village, his family, the whole thing. He lost it all. And now they come, would you please help us? You know, I have to believe that Jephthah's reputation went ahead of him. People probably heard about him. You hear about this warrior guy down in Tobe? He's amazing. You know, he's like the rock star down there. He's just wiping everybody out. They're like, who is it, Jep Jephthah, Really? Him? And they heard it over and over, and they're like, we got to get him to help us. We got to get him to help us. Jephthah's not real convinced. He says, uh, don't you guys hate me? Isn't that why you threw me out in the first place? Why'd you come down here when you're stuck? And they said, we are turning to you. Come fight, and you will be the head over all of us in Gilead. Oh my goodness, what an opportunity. What a story. The community outcast. The, guy, the kid from the other side of the tracks gets welcomed home as the mighty warrior and leads the nation into battle and comes back the victor and gets, becomes the king. I mean, the head over everything. He's the king of the community is what he is. 
talk about a redemption tour, but Jephthah's just a little bit skeptical. He's like, yeah, right. You guys threw me out once. What's going to keep you from throwing me out a second time when I just get you what you want, which is the Ammonites off your back? He says, the Lord's going to give them to me. Well, I really, what, you going to really give that to me? You going to really give it to me? And they're like, God is our witness. God is our witness. Right hand on the Bible, we say, we will do what we say. And so he went with them, and they made him in charge. And he repeated all these words before the Lord just to guarantee that this was going to happen. And so Jephthah is now in charge. He's the guy in charge of everything. And so he goes to the king of Ammon, and he says, uh, can we talk about this? Can we discuss the problem? Can we get the problem resolved? He starts negotiating with the king of Ammon. Jephthah says, why are we fighting? And the king of Ammon says, you took our land, and now it's time for you to give it back. Jephthah says, that's not how the story went. You see, when we came into this land, out of the land of, out of, out of our wandering, we were coming in, we just asked permission, can we cross the land to get to the promised land? We just wanted to cross your land. That's all we wanted. That's all we wanted. And you said, no, we're not going to let you cross the land. We're going to mass our armies. And you know what? You massed all armies. And he says in verse 21, God whipped your butt soundly and took that land and gave it all to us. That was 300 years ago. And now you want it back? Why in the world do you want this back? God's going to resolve this. And the king of Ammon says, no, we're going to resolve it. And he paid no attention to the message that Jephthah had sent. And he ended the dialogue, ended the conversation right there. And then in the next verse, an amazing thing happens. It says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. This phrase, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, it only shows up a few times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, excuse me. Only a few times. A couple times here in Judges, it sh- he shows up, the Spirit of the Lord came on Othniel that Jeremy talked about last year, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. And now the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jephthah. And what's an amazing thing is the Spirit of the Lord would come upon an individual and they would be able to do something, something amazing. There was some kind of task or feat or responsibility that God had for them. And they would be able to execute this, whether it was to lead or to fight or to discern or to guide or direct. And the Bible says in the New Testament that after Jesus left this earth, that everyone who's a follower of Jesus, that God's Spirit is upon them. God's Spirit is upon them. And so every person in this room that says, I'm a follower of Jesus, God's Spirit is upon you with that exact same power giving you the capacity to do the things that you saw these and read about these individuals do. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. You say, did Jephthah know that this had happened? I don't have any idea. I don't have any idea. All I know is God was, a, was, a passive, was passively in the, off to the distance in this story, and now he's front and center front and center. I don't know if he shook like that and all of a sudden he knew the Spirit of God was on him. I don't know how it happened, but somehow it took place. So what do we know right now? What do we know? Well, we know we've got a mighty warrior, right? We know that this guy can get people to follow him, right? We know that the army is behind him and that the leaders are supportive of him, and we know that God has defended this territory, captured it once, And it said he's going to capture it and take care of it again. So he's going ahead with the odds stacked clearly in his favor. 
Clearly, there's multiple factors that's saying there's little chance that the Ammonites are going to win. There's little chance that they're going to win. God's, it's heavily stacked. Heavily stacked. He then goes throughout the land rallying the troops. And then in verse 29, he does something that's a bit strange. A bit strange. He made a vow to the Lord, and he said, if you give the Ammonites into my hands. So he said to God, he said, if, 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 if you deliver on your promise, God, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, that will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So God, you do this, and I'll do this. Deal? Deal? God, you give me the victory, and the first thing that comes out of the house when I come home, I'll offer it as a sacrifice. Sounds a bit like a foxhole conversion. Um, God, you get me out of this mess, and I'll go to church the rest of my life. Um, God, God, you fix my marriage, I'll be the best husband or wife that my spouse has ever known. God, if you heal me from this life-threatening illness, I'll just serve people as long as you give me life. God, you, you, you spare my business from going bankrupt, and I'm going to give back to you. I'm going to tie to you all the days of my life. God, if you will, I will. If you will, I will. If you will, I will. He's already a warrior. He already had the whole nation behind him. He already had God on his side. And then he needed one more guarantee. Why? 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 I'm going to speculate that the abandonment and betrayal that he experienced early in his life left him always making sure his bases were covered so it didn't happen to him again. You remember earlier in the story when they invited him to come back? He's like, he's like, all right, guys. He's like, what are you trying to pull me into? What are you trying to trick me into? He's always making sure his bases are covered, always making sure that everything's secure. Because if he was going to lead God's people into battle, he was going to do the exact same thing. No risk of failure, no risk of defeat, everything covered. And I want to suggest to you that I don't think he had a history of trusting God. I don't think he had experiences where he knew God was going to be there for him. And so when he was facing this incredible challenge, instead of saying, the God of Israel is going to take care of me and walk with me through, he's like, you know what? I just got to get one more guarantee down. One more guarantee. And instead of trusting God, he tried to control God and manipulate and negotiate with God. So what happened? What happened in the story? Well, they went to battle, and the Lord did exactly what He said He was going to do, gave them into His hand, devastated 20, 20 towns, subdued Ammon. He wiped them out. Clean sweep. God did it all for him. And He returns. He's coming back home. He's a conqueror here, you know, cheering. Yay, yay, Jephthah, Jephthah, Jephthah. There's signs, banners, confetti flowing. I don't know if they had confetti in those days, but whatever they would throw in those days, you know. Um, there was stuff flying everywhere, and, you know, and I wonder if in the back of his mind, he's thinking, oh, that, that thing I said to God, ooh, I kind of forgot about that. I wonder if God forgot about that one as well. Um, but what happens in the very next verse? He turned to his house. Who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing the sound of timbrels? And notice what the narrator says. She was his only child, except for her he had neither son nor daughter, which I think means the same as only child, doesn't it? But they made sure you didn't forget that and didn't miss that, so he told you twice, which means it's really, 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 really important. Oh my goodness, what in the world just happened? 
Imagine what's going through Jephthah's mind at this moment. You know, you know, God, I, I kind of hope you forgot about that one. Can we, can we set that one aside? Can, can I get a pass on this one? A mulligan on this one? You know, I kind of wonder how many people at the end of their lives are going to stand before their maker and he's going to say, you remember that conversation we had and you promised if I did, you would, and I did and you didn't? Do you remember that? I kind of thought you forgot that one, God. I kind of thought you let that one slide on me, God. You remember that you stood before me, uh, other people, and you made these vows to someone else before me, and then you bailed? Well, I thought that would be okay, God. I wonder how many people are going to hear from God. Do you remember when... Suddenly, the memory comes back to Jephthah as he sees his daughter come out of the house. And what does Jephthah do? He's just devastated. He tore his clothes. He cried out, oh, no, my daughter. And then he shifts the focus on her. You have brought me down. It's all your fault. What do we do when we can't handle our own pain and our own shame? What do we do? We just dump that on someone else. I am devastated. Devastated. And the victory parade just comes to a screeching halt. And you're like, oh my goodness, what is going to happen next? What's going to happen is he really going to have to go through with this? Is God going to provide some, some sheep in the woods for him to sacrifice instead of? Is, is an angel going to come down and give him a pass? What's going to happen in this story? It can't be what I think it's going to be. There's no way God would let that happen. Would he? And as you read about this, commentators, they're all over the map about what happens. Um, some suggest that he actually did sacrifice his daughter because in that culture in that day, child sacrifices to these pagan gods was incredibly common to appease the gods. Is that a possibility? It absolutely is. There's another possibility that I want to suggest to you that I came across. Um, Look at the daughter's response. She says, give me this one request. Give me two months to roam the hills, weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went in the hills and wept because she would never marry. Seems a little odd to me. I thought she would say, because I'm going to die. Don't you? But she says, because I'm never going to get married. And they go do their little rum springer thing, and then they're, you know, back in two months, and, you know, never going to marry, you know. We're never going to marry. And so I read one writer that made the suggestion that maybe this sacrifice was not an actual physical sacrifice of her life, but it was a sacrifice where he gave her up and she went and served God in the temple in the place of worship um, as almost like a nun would in, a, in the Catholic faith today. And so she would never marry. And she would spend the rest of her life isolated from her family, from her friends, from her entire community. But she would be sacrificed to be serving God, very much like the story of Samuel and Hannah. 
a little bit later in the very, one of the very next books. After two months she returned, he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. There's no definitive answer on this. There really isn't. Um, what we know is he tried to get a guarantee from God, and he lost what he treasured the most, his one and only daughter. And as a father of a daughter, and for those of you that have daughters, even those of you that don't or have sons, I mean, just the thought of losing a child is beyond, I can't even wrap my mind around the agony and grief of that. Um, And maybe some of you have known that. Maybe some of you have. Um, But in this case, he lost his daughter because he was trying to get a guarantee from God. God had already planned to come through, and he needed a little bit more. I got to tell you, Jephthah is one confusing guy. One confusing guy. The guy had a forgettable beginning, likely an awful childhood, the son of a harlot, described as a bastard, kicked out of his home and community, becomes a warrior and a leader, brought back with a chance to win back his favor and lead the community as the king and as the ruler, makes a foolish vow, becomes the judge and leader of the kingdom, but loses what he treasures the most, his daughter. And then if you go on to read the very next chapter in Judges chapter 12, what you discover is there was a group of people that said, why didn't you call us when you were going to battle? We would have liked to come and help. And Jephthah basically says, would you quit complaining and whining? Can you say this word shibboleth? And they couldn't say it. They would say sibboleth. And he said, if you say sibboleth instead of shibboleth, we're going to kill you. And he wiped out 42,000 people. I'm like, that's a little anger out of control there, you know? And yet in spite of all of this, when you go to the end of the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, where it writes about these heroes of our faith that we're supposed to look to and be encouraged by and challenge and strengthen, guess whose name gets listed? Jephthah. You're like, what? What? How did that guy's name get in that when he did this stuff? Doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. I'll be the first to admit, it doesn't make any sense. But I know that God's spirit was on him. I know that God allowed him to do something significant. But that doesn't erase the bad choices and decisions that he made. As I thought about this, there's some truths that I want us to sit with as we wrap up this morning. One of the truths is this, our relationship with God is not to be treated like our relationship with anyone else. Uh, You can negotiate, you can barter, you can sweet talk anybody you want, but that's not what God wants in his relationship with you. It's not what God wants. Um, And somehow I think we lose sight of, we forget that God is the creator of the universe and he's not one to be negotiated with, bargained with, or traded with to get what I want. I think we quickly and easily forget that. Why did God give Jephthah the victory? Why did God give him that? Um, Because of Jephthah's skill as a warrior? No, I think it says very clearly in the text, God defeated the enemy, right? God defeated the enemy. 
I wonder if Jephthah thought God's silence required more action and more guarantees. And God's silence doesn't require anything more from us other than our willingness to trust Him. The truth is, just because we experience good things in this life does not all mean that God is approving of our actions. I heard this from a preacher named Chris Brown who's talking about this subject. And he said, just because we experience good things, he won the battle, right? Jephthah won the battle. Doesn't mean God is approving of all of our actions. Just because life is successful does not mean that God's happy with you. Just because that you're gifted doesn't mean that you're spiritual. Just because you're blessed doesn't mean that you're okay with God. Just because that you have an easy life doesn't mean that you're doing all the right things. You see, God's going to do what God's going to do. And part of the fact that this story is recognize that God is sovereignly in control of all the things that happen in our life. And He doesn't need you to try to make one more guarantee, to try to negotiate with Him, to try to get something from Him. You know, I think about my good friend Johnny. Many of you know, one of the guys on our staff and team, just helping somebody out. Now trying to recover from a traumatic brain injury and all the stuff that goes on with that. And he didn't do anything wrong. He's actually doing good. And so you can add the reverse. Just because we experience bad things doesn't mean that God is disapproving of our actions either. It goes the other way as well goes the other way as well. The question for you and I to ask ourselves today, am, am I negotiating with God or am I surrendering to God? Am I negotiating with God or am I surrendering to God? You see, I think in a lot of times in our lives, we find ourselves negotiating with God to try to get the things that we want, and they're not often bad things. You know, I want my kids to be safe, and God, I'll do this if you keep my kids safe. That's not a bad thing. I, I want to get through this health issue, God. I'll do this if you do this. It's not a bad thing. But God says, you don't have to negotiate with me. You don't have to try to trade favors with me. God says, I just simply want you to walk with me, to follow me, to surrender your life to me, to open your hands up like this and say, God, here's my life. Every day, all throughout the day, God, here's my life. And if you're anything like me, I forget this so easily. I mean, I can do this in the morning, and then by 10 o'clock, I've completely forgotten that I've surrendered my life to God, you know, as I'm battling whatever is in front of me at that moment in time. But God says, it's going to take you every single day, all throughout the day, saying, God, I surrender. God, I surrender. God, I surrender. I'm not going to manipulate. I'm not going to control. I'm not going to negotiate. I'm just going to surrender my life to you. The story of Jephthah is really, for me, a painful story. Because here's a guy who God had done some pretty cool things. But he really, at the end of the day, I don't think trusted God. And he'd lost something really valuable because he couldn't trust God. So I want to challenge you to ask yourself today, what am I holding tightly to? And likely it's a good thing. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's something you know God's saying, you need to open your hands and hold this loosely. I want to invite you to bow your heads as we close in prayer. And um, 
I just want to give you a moment to talk to God. If there's something that's been on your heart that as I've talked, it's kind of stirred that up for you, just take a moment and offer that to Him. God, you need to know each one of our hearts and our stories. You know the things that we want from you and um, the things we're trying to barter with you for and negotiate with you, the things we think we deserve. And so, God, today you're inviting us to open our hands and surrender. And, Lord, for some of us, it's something God's never tapped on your heart and said, are you willing to open your hands on this one? He's saying, open your hands. Open your hands. And for others of you, it's something that God taps on your heart all the time. Over and over again, and said, open your hands. Open your hands. Can you surrender your children, your spouse, your relationships, your future, your career, your reputation, your past, your pain, all of it, all of it. God says, I'm not promising that it's all going to be easy and life is going to go smoothly, but I'm promising you that if you are willing to open your hands and say, Lord, I, I need you. I can't do this on my own. That you're going to walk with us wherever that journey takes us. God, make this next song our prayer. In the prayer of our hearts, in your name we pray. Amen. We can